Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Laura. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Timothy 1, chapter, or verses 3 through 5. When I left for Macedonia, I asked you to stay behind in Ephesus so that you could instruct certain individuals not to spread wrong teaching. They shouldn't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Their teaching only causes useless guessing games instead of faithfulness to God's way of doing things. The goal of instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Randy Lynn. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, verse 46 through 48. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We thank you that your love is complete that it's shown to everyone, that you make the sun shine and the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Today, as we come and we open your scriptures, which you have so generously given to us, may we behold once again the love of God revealed in Jesus. May we see your love. May we experience your love. May we know your love. And may your love change us, transform us into the image of the one who loves us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning, New Life Downtown. Those of you who are here, those of you that are watching online, we love you. We hope that you are doing well. We miss you and hope to see you again in person soon. Have you ever been misled, led to believe something that you later found out was untrue? My birthday every year is, uh, well, of course, it's a birthday, so it happens every year, but uh, my birthday is in November, and so it happens at the end of the year, and what inevitably started happening a few years ago was when January came around, my wife started talking about how old I was going to be next year, meaning like not in a few, like nine months, 11 months at that point until, you know, my actual birthday, but what I was going to be the year after that. And so I think she started doing this when I was probably 41. I turned 41, and then, you know, January came. She was like, you're going to be 43 next year. And it happened enough times that I, I got confused. <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed to say, but there was a moment where I was in a conversation with someone, and they asked me, like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 40. I, I think I'm 42 because I'm going to be 43 next year. So I must be 42. And then I had to start doing math. It was like, wait, okay, I was born in 1978. So I am, how old am I? It was an absolutely embarrassing moment because I had been misled. (laughs) By someone who claims to love me. (laughs) Uh, It still happens now from time to time. And I I was really comforted after the first service where I was told that several other people have experienced the same thing. So I was like, thank you for not making me feel alone in my my challenges in life. Uh, But this is how sort of, you know, as silly as this example is, when when we are misled, when we do end up coming to believe something that's untrue, 
it typically is something that happens along these lines, that it usually is something that's coming from someone that we love or that we respect or that is, has some expertise or is in a position of authority or power or influence. So someone that is not someone distant from our lives that we don't care anything about. It's usually from someone in proximity to us. And it comes with a sense of influence or a sense of authority. And usually what they're saying is something that's really, really close to the truth. If Sarah had been telling me, you know, next year you're going to be 86 years old, I wouldn't have believed her. I hope. I am kind of like 85 on the inside, like inside. I just want to have a cup of coffee and do a crossword puzzle, um, which I know is really embarrassing to share as well. But... It's like, I, I know that I'm there internally, but the rest of me has not caught up, you know, to the 86-year-old living on the inside of me. But it, because it was close enough, it was easy for me to believe. It's like, well, yeah, I think I am 42 right now. And then it just sort of is like something that's easy to buy. So we have this connection. It's close to the truth. And then sometimes it just leads us to something embarrassing, right? It's just a prank that someone plays on us. It's a joke. We're like, oh, I've forgotten how old I am. But in other situations, it can actually lead us into places that are actually not good for us. They're not good for our community. They're not good for the people that we love. They're not actually leading us into God's flourishing for us. This is actually why Paul in the New Testament is so concerned with false teaching. is because the false teaching that's happening in the early church are things that are actually really, really close to the truth. But there's a slight deviation away from what God has revealed to be true in Jesus. And Paul knows if that keeps going in that direction, it will actually lead us in places that are destructive for our souls and destructive for the community that God is knitting together in the person of Jesus. And so this is why Paul is coming up with us all of the time. And today we're going to see Paul starting to do that in a particular letter. We're starting a series in 1 Timothy today. We'll be here for the next six weeks all the way up to the time of Advent. Uh, so that'll be coming up at the end of November. But for now, we're going to be here in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is the first of two letters that Paul writes to a guy named Timothy, along with the letter that he writes to Titus. It's, they're the only three letters that Paul writes to an individual. Even a letter like Philemon is actually addressed to a group of people. But here he's writing as a church leader to another church leader and addressing a very specific situation. Timothy is somebody that Paul knows quite well, someone who's quite dear to him. They met when Paul was on his first missionary journey. You can read about that encounter in Acts chapter 16. And then Paul likes this guy so much, he asks him to become a part of his traveling team. Will you come with me, Timothy? And so he goes with him on his second and his third journey. Paul trusts Timothy so much, he often sends him out as a representative on Paul's behalf into places. He trusts Timothy so much, Timothy co-authors six of his letters. And it's not just Paul writing alone, but Timothy co-authoring things with him. Paul refers to Timothy as his co-worker, as his brother, as his loyal child. There's an immense amount of admiration and affection between these two men. And on a trip toward the end of Paul's ministry life, he's going through Macedonia, and he's in a city called Ephesus. And he's traveling with Timothy, and he asks Timothy to stay there to stay in Ephesus as Paul goes on. Ephesus is is a significant city in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. And Paul writes two letters to Timothy while he's there. The first one is probably written around 65 AD. So a couple years ago is when this first letter is written. Timothy's a young leader at the time. He's probably in his 30s. And he's facing some really significant challenges. And our New Testament reading that Laura read for us today actually tells us what that major challenge is. That the church is being influenced by a group of false teachers. That there is false teaching that is sort of being spread in this community of house churches. Probably in Ephesus at the time, two, maybe three house churches. And there is some significant false teaching happening. This becomes the context for the entire letter. And so one of the challenges in reading it is that it's critically important for us to try to identify what is Paul trying to correct? What is the false teaching that's actually happening in Ephesus at this time that Timothy's encountering that Paul is trying to help him walk through? And this is particularly hard for two reasons. Number one, the Bible is just hard to read. Can we be honest about that? Like it was written a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away from here. 
right? It's, it's written in a different time, in a different place, in a different language, with different culture and different customs. And there's times where we're reading and we're like, what? I don't have a clue what you're saying. Paul in particular. There's actually an, a letter in the New Testament that says, Paul is difficult to understand. Another New Testament writer from the same period of time, speaking the same language, says, Paul's really hard. <laughs> so we should take great comfort in the fact, okay, this is challenging. But it's especially challenging when we're reading a letter, when we're reading an epistle, because we're dropping in in the middle of a conversation. We're not reading something like Genesis that's actually you know, a book that stands alone by itself. We're entering into the middle of a conversation. We're, get, we're getting one side of something that's ongoing. Imagine, for example, that you just happened to intercept a letter that I wrote to my brother. Why you would be intercepting that letter, we'll just pretend. Um, and you, you get the letter and then you, you read it. And now when I'm writing a letter to my brother, maybe it's a response to something I know that he's written me a letter and now I'm writing back to him. And there's a lot that I can assume. I can assume he knows what he communicated to me and I can assume he knows all of our inside jokes from growing up in rural Iowa, right? Like there's a lot that can sort of go on there. And when you pick up the letter, you're going to miss out on those things. That is, of course, if you can even read it because my handwriting is so bad. Like you may have just been like, I don't, this is another language. When I write letters to Sarah, or cards, she just hands it back to me and says, can you read this for me? Because I don't know what this says. It's like, I don't know, uh, just, and I try. I write slow and I go over the letters multiple times. I need those like dotted lines again, and maybe that would help. But if you read it, there would be a lot missing in terms of that context. Or maybe you've walked in and someone talking on the phone and you're listening to the conversation. You're like, man, whatever that is, it's extremely serious. It's like the responses are like, no, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And then maybe they get angry. And then you realize they're just talking about the Broncos. <laughs> but like you, because you, you only had one side of the conversation. Was it too soon? Like, I'm sorry, Bronco fans. <laughs> like, there was like a murmur that happened in there. I'm like, I'm sorry, Russell Wilson. It's a, it's a, yeah, I'll leave that and go on. So we're picking, we're, when we're reading Paul's letters, this is the challenge for us. It's language, it's culture, it's context, and we're just dealing with one side. And so we have to try to identify, well, who are these false teachers and what are they teaching? Because Paul doesn't say, dear Timothy, there is a problem with Jason. He's teaching this and he shouldn't be teaching that. That's not how the letter is written. Instead, we have to look through the letter to try to figure out clues of what's actually going on. And what seems to be happening is that these false teachers are not people coming in from the outside. They're not sort of folks traveling through as happens sometimes in the New Testament. They seem to be people who have risen to leadership in the church. They are leaders in the house church. This is probably why Paul spends so much time talking about uh, church order and church structures and talking about the character of leaders in the church. And it seems to me that they're teaching different or contrary things is what he calls them that seem to come from two or maybe three sources. And we're not sure if this is like over here, this person's teaching this and over here, this person's teaching this, or if there's just some sort of mixed bag of things where like, I'm going to take a little here and a little from here. And there's sort of syncretism where things are being sort of added in and they sound close enough to the gospel and they're coming from people in leadership or authority. They're like, oh yeah, I guess that might be true. And they're starting to infiltrate into the church. And it's probably coming from three different sort of sources or three ideas. The first one is a misinterpretation of the Old Testament. This happens throughout the New Testament, that as Jewish believers are coming to faith in Jesus, and they're now sort of trying to understand, okay, all that has been talked about in the Old Testament in light of Jesus, sometimes there's some challenges there of just trying to understand, okay, how do we read this? And it becomes particularly challenging for thinking about relationships between Jews and Gentiles. And how is it now that these folks are all being brought together into one family? And so you have people that are sort of teaching the law in ways that are actually misguided. Paul says, or says it this way in 1 Timothy 1, they want to be teachers of the law. They're desiring a good thing here. They, they want to understand the Old Testament. They want to teach it well, but they're doing so. They want to be teachers, but they have no understanding. 
either what they are saying or what they are talking about with such confidence. This is a major problem in the early church. We know that the law is good. We know that the Old Testament is good, but often can be misinterpreted and misused. Paul often has to talk about this in his letters. One of the major things that there's a lot of Jewish believers who insist that Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Jesus followers. And so they have to get circumcised and they have to eat certain ways. And all of these things sort of have to happen. And we see the way that this kind of infiltrates into various communities. And so that's source one. Source two is probably an infiltration of Greco-Roman mythology. Ephesus, if you remember your humanities or history class, is home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's home to the temple of Artemis. Ephesus as a city, its sort of identity, its culture, its sort of religious history is all wrapped up in, even its economics are wrapped up in the sense that this is the place where Artemis is worshiped. This is where the goddess is lifted high. So anyone who's coming into faith from a Gentile background is probably coming in as someone who'd been a disciple of Artemis at some point, who learned or received Artemis theology. And now that's finding its way into the church. That as Gentiles are becoming Christians, they're bringing their past with them like we all do. When I came to faith in high school, I was bringing with me a significant amount of uh, understanding of the world through John Hughes's coming of age 80s movies and through the music videos I watched on MTV. And it turns out you don't have to fight for your right to party, but I thought that you did. Like I, I, was, I was trained by the Beastie Boys to think in certain ways that I later on found out like, oh, maybe that's not the best way to live. <laughs> we bring things in. The third thing that we see happening probably in the church is an introduction of Gnosticism or dualism. Both of those things sort of have in common the sense that everything that's physical is bad and everything that's spiritual is good. Paul says at the very end of his letter, he says this, he says, Timothy, protect what you've been given in trust. Avoid godless and pointless discussions and the contradictory claims of so-called knowledge. The reason that this may be Gnosticism here as opposed to just kind of standard uh, Greek dualism is because of the way that he uses that word. Gnosticism becomes a major heresy in the second and third century, a major false belief, just about a hundred years or so after this letter. But it's beginning around this time. It's sort of, you know, origin story finds itself here. And what the Gnostics believed is that every person had inside of them a light that was trapped inside the body. The body was dark, but inside there was a light that was trapped inside. And there were a select few people who had secret knowledge of how to let the light out, of how to be set free from the body. And what Gnosticism eventually does is it, it denies the goodness of God's creation. It denies the goodness of physical resurrection. And it denies the goodness of physical new creation that we see at the end of the book. And if that sort of idea sounds familiar, this idea that there's a light trapped inside of the body that a select few know how to unlock, it's because we have variations of Gnosticism that are very common in our culture today. It's a very common sort of idea and thought. But Paul becomes concerned about each of these things in the church because he knows what they lead to. For him, he recognizes that unsound teaching or false teaching actually creates pointless debates and pervasive discord. It leads to this place where there's just words and words and words and words that are just pointless and not actually going anywhere toward faithfulness to Jesus. And it results in pervasive discord in the community. In other words, it creates the first cable news networks. <laughs> Was that too soon too? Come on. Okay, maybe it's like sports talk radio or a Jackson Family reunion. Like one of those things could also be like pointless debates and pervasive discord is family reunions. There you go. We'll use that one instead. But Paul is saying, this is what happens, that you begin to believe these things and it actually is going to lead you down a path that's going to be endless sort of speculation and pervasive disunity in the church. And that's not actually what sound teaching does. Paul says instead, tells us, tells Timothy, tells the church to hold on to, to protect healthy or sound teaching because sound teaching conforms to the gospel and actually leads to love. 
sound teaching conforms to the gospel, conforms to all that God is doing in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and leads us into a life of love. The love that we have revealed in Jesus, that kind of love, that's a sustainable God-like love. He says it this way, 1 Timothy 1.11, sound teaching agrees with the glorious gospel of the blessed God that has been entrusted to me. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of instruction, the goal of sound teaching, the goal of healthy ideas, of healthy theology is love from a pure heart. The goal is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so throughout the letter, what we're going to be doing is seeing how Paul unpacks this, how he confronts each of these three things, the misuse of the Old Testament, the infiltration of Greco-Roman mythology, and even the sense of dualism or Gnosticism that's coming in, how he confronts them and how he unpacks it throughout the letter. But it's interesting where he starts. He kind of sets up the whole thing. Here's the problem. Here's what we're going to do about it. And then he starts in a very peculiar place. He starts with talking about how they're praying together that becomes the utmost concern for him is how the church prays when it's together. This is the most urgent thing for him at the very beginning because it seems what's going on is that their prayers are actually not conforming to the gospel and leading to love. Prayer should. Public prayer of the people of God gathering together, that our prayers should conform to the gospel and lead to love. But that's not actually what's happening We'll pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses, verse 1 through 8. And he says this, First of all then, I ask that requests, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings, he's coming with every word for prayer he can, that every kind of prayer be made for all people. Pray for kings and everyone who is in authority so that we can live, in, we can live a quiet and peaceful life in complete godliness and dignity. This is right And it pleases God, our Savior. Now he's starting to preach the gospel. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a payment to set all people free. This was a testimony that was given to me at the right time, was given at the right time. And I was appointed to be a preacher, an apostle of this testimony. And I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, because of all of this, I want men everywhere to pray everywhere by lifting up hands that are holy without anger or arguments. Lifting up holy hands to pray, not angry or argumentative once. So I think what we see here is some glimpses into what's happening. It's fascinating is that throughout this passage, Paul uses all like all the time. He just keeps saying all and all and all and all and all. He says, pray for all people, including all authority, because God wants all people to be saved. And Jesus gave himself to set all people free. He's reiterating the gospel that Jesus came for the whole world. Not everyone will receive him, but he came for everybody. He wants everyone to come into his kingdom. And then at the very end, he very interestingly says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. Why is he saying all? And why is he mentioning Gentiles in the midst of this conversation around prayer, those who are non-Jews? The language, I think, actually shows us what's happening is that apparently some are teaching a kind of Jewish exclusivism, that God came to rescue Israel and anyone who would maybe become part of Israel, anyone who would become Jewish, rather than teaching, no, Jesus came to save all, Jew and Gentile alike. That Jesus came to save all and to set all free. They're probably teaching some sense that, no, Jesus actually has this favoritism here toward this particular group. And if you're in that group, then you can sort of, you know, be a part of the family. And it's likely that what's happening is they're emphasizing divisions between Jews and Gentiles in their own congregation, in their own community, sort of pointing out ways in which, you know, there's this group and there's this group for this people that have been brought together in Christ. That, of course, never happens today in church. It was just something that happened back then. But there's an apparent sort of exclusivism that's being taught. And it's actually coming out in their prayers. 
It's funny, sometimes our prayers can actually betray what's going on in our hearts. They can actually show something that's going on inside of us. And what's likely happening is that rather than praying for everyone, and rather than longing and hoping for everyone to come to the truth of Jesus, is they're just praying for some. They're just praying for some people and for some leaders. And maybe even praying in ways that are sort of letting other people in the congregation know, you're not really welcome here. You're not really a part of us. You're not really in, because only we are. And they may be even praying against others, this sense of hands that are raised in anger and in arguments, hands that are raised and praying in such a way that's creating rifts in the community, in the congregation, in the city that they find themselves in. This may be why he's saying, you know, you need to pray for all authority that we might live peaceable lives, because the way that they're praying is actually making it difficult to be in the city. They're actually praying in ways that are making it hard as a oppressed minority in the city to actually live out the ways that they're called to live out in the city. Instead, they're praying these sort of vindictive and divisive prayers. And they're doing it in public. They're doing it in worship. They're doing it with those people in the room. And Paul's saying, that's actually not the place and the, the place to pray those kind of prayers and the way to pray in public. The Psalms, of course, give us all kinds of prayers to pray, like, God, would you break the teeth of our enemy? <laughs> you know, it's this sense of like, I, I had this thing in me, I need to let it out to God in prayer, but that's not, the, the public worship is not the place for those kinds of things. See, rather than asking for all families of the earth to be blessed in God as he promised Abraham, and rather than praying for God's love to be shown to everyone as Jesus taught, their prayers do not conform to the gospel or lead to love. They're actually telling a different story and leading to division. And it's coming out in the way that they pray. This is actually, I think, why it's really important that we don't rant and rave uh, against things on Sunday morning in worship. I know that there's times where it's like, that can be disappointing, it can be frustrating. It's like, why aren't you railing against this? As a pastor, it's like, I have yet to see that actually lead the people of God to loving their neighbor and loving their enemy by just sort of like ranting and raving on Sunday morning about all the things that are wrong in the world. Like, I'm concerned about those things. There are things that are deeply troubling. There is evil in the world, and there's things that are happening that are not good, and we need to speak about them. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to lament what's happening and ask, ask God to intervene. We need to name evil as evil, all of those kind of things. But our prayer in this setting is to say, okay, God, we need your help. Would you come and would you intervene? And would you bring those that are committing evil in the world, would you bring them to repentance? Would you let them know that they are loved? Would you help them to see that they're made in your image? Would you challenge them with your gospel? Would you bring them into light? Would you set them free? Would you come alongside of them? Would you teach us to love them? Would you forgive us for the times that we haven't loved them? that we haven't loved them well. That's the kind of prayers we pray as the people of God because that conforms to the gospel. And it leads us to love, to love even those people that we would identify as enemies. So it's not that we're trying to avoid those things. It's just there's a way that we approach those things as the people of God that's different than the ways that other people approach them. And so this is Paul's corrective. It's corrective to the church where people are praying angry and argumentative prayers. He tells them to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, especially those that we'd rather not pray for, those that we'd rather pray against. He calls us to pray for. So I wonder this morning, who are those people for you? Because I hate messages like this. <laughs> it's like, ah, because I have a whole list of people that I'd rather not pray for. People that have hurt me, people who've hurt my, the people that I love, people that the way that they live their lives hurt others in ways that are just heartbreaking. And I would rather not pray for them. And I think for all of us in the room, it's like, yeah, there's some people that I would just rather not bring before the presence of God. Who are those people for you? And when you think about this, folks, like, how do we pray for them? 
And Paul gives us, I think, some very simple things. He just says, offer all kinds of prayers for them. <laughs> like, just whatever you can pray, pray. <laughs> Petitions, prayers, thanksgivings, intercessions, supplications. He just names them all. But I think he gives us some hints to pray for all people. And the first thing he says is, I think, in this sense of praying prayers of intercession, that we ask God to meet their needs. That these are the kind of prayers that we can pray for everyone. God, would you meet their needs? We have a God who wants everyone to have daily bread. God who makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, causes the rain to fall on those who are evil and those who are attempting to do good in the world. And so we can pray, God, would you feed them? Would you feed their family? Would you clothe them? Would you let their basic human needs be met? It's a way of acknowledging the humanity that's still in them that may be distorted by whatever evil that they've capitulated to, but we recognize that the humanity is there and say, God, would you meet their needs? Would you provide for them today? Would you care for them today? We can ask God to meet their needs. The second thing is we can give God thanks for their lives. This may be the hardest one because there's a lot of people whose lives, the way they live their lives doesn't lead us to thanksgiving. Doesn't lead us to like, you know, I'm really glad that they're alive. And yet the truth of the story of God is that God put breath in their lungs. That they are someone who is created in the image of God. That they are one that, that God deeply cares about. That their life is actually precious, even though the way that they're living their life is not. The way that they're living life might be abusive, it might be destructive, it might be all of these kinds of things. And yet at some point, they were a small child. That maybe something happened to them along the way. Maybe the very things that they've done to us are things that people have done to them. And at some point along the way, something terrible happened. Either something happened to them or they made a terrible decision and they're now in this place. And yet they've been given the gift of life by God. And we can say that all life matters to God. We can say, okay, God, I thank you that you have given them breath in their lungs that you have given them life, that you have made them in your image and that that is not lost. And because there's still breath in their lungs, there's still hope for them. There's still hope for redemption. There's still hope for reconciliation. There's still hope for change. That leads us to the third prayer that we get from Paul, which is to call on God for their salvation. <laughs> like, God, let them know the gospel. May they meet Jesus. May they encounter him. May the good news of the gospel break through. May light come into the darkness. May they come to see truth and beauty and grace and mercy and love. When they come to know you, when they come out of the place that they're in, come to a place of repentance and come to say, actually, I had it all wrong. Jesus is right and I'm trying to follow him. I'm praying for redemption for them. We can pray this prayer because the truth is someone called out for each of us. Someone called out to God for my salvation. I'm pretty confident one of those people was my great-grandma. <laughs> that as she sat in her later years and watched her great-grandchildren being raised, she died just a month before she turned 107. As she prayed, as she prayed, and I know that those prayers made a difference in my life. The gospel broke into my life as a teenager partly because I had a great-grandma that prayed. Maybe for you, it was your mom, maybe it was your dad, maybe it was a neighbor, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a coworker, maybe it was a young life leader, maybe it was a youth pastor. Somebody prayed, somebody called out to God for your salvation and the gospel graciously came to you too. That's how we ended up here. And so because at some point in our life, we woke up to the reality that we are part of the all, that we are one of the all that Jesus came for that we're one of the all that Jesus came to set free because we know that sense because we've tasted and seen that God is good and that God gave us the salvation that we didn't deserve and that we didn't earn. And therefore, we can also pray for others who don't deserve it and can't earn it. That we can say, God, would you intervene in their lives and would they come to know the gospel? So as we get ready to come to the table this morning, I wanna invite you to pray for one of those people. Now, when you have that list of folks that you'd rather not pray for, would you take a moment now as the band comes and as Sarah comes to lead us to the table, and would you say a prayer for them? Maybe it's you ask God to meet a need for them, a need that you know they have. Maybe it's asking God, just thanking God for their life. 
not for the impact of their life on you, but thanking that God made them in their image, in his image. Or maybe it's just calling out to God for their salvation. It's like, God, would you bring them to repentance? Take one of those people and just begin to pray for them as we come to the table to remember the God who rescued us too. Um, I feel led this morning to share uh, a little bit of my story with you because, um, because I know that I, at one point, was at a place where someone was crying out for my salvation. In my 20s, I, I'd grown up in the church, but had just started desiring other things. And this is actually when Jason and I were married, and I was in a really dark place and really hurting him with my decisions and the things that I was wanting. And I got to a place even where I was really this close. I was really wrestling with, like, do I even want to be a part of faith at all? Um, And we had moved to a different town, and some neighbors of ours had invited us to a church, and that church uh, practice weekly communion as we do. And I'm sharing this to you before we partake in this together, because I know that so often when we're doing something on a regular basis, we become accustomed to the action of it, right? Sometimes we talk about things becoming rote or we're doing something without thinking about it. And I wanna continue to call us back to an awareness of what we are participating in. When we receive these elements, this simple thing that we're doing, and we listen to and, and we speak sort of the liturgy that goes with this practice, what we're actually doing is we are responding to the invitation of Jesus to us. And when I was a part of that church and I did not want Jesus, every week when we came to the table, I had to ask, like, do I want him? Do I even want him? Sometimes I would partake with the group because that's what everybody was doing. But over time, I see how the years in that faithful community and of receiving the elements together, like I would have encounters with Jesus at the table. There were times where I literally felt like he was like taking me and like pulling me toward him, towards the yes. And I look back over my life, my my desires have changed. And I know that part of that is because of receiving communion with the people of God every week. So I want to call us to the table, which is really a call to respond to an invitation because this is Jesus's table. This is the place that he has set with his own life. Not just by his example of how he loved, that's a huge part of it, but literally he allowed himself to be given for us. And all who believe in Jesus are welcome to to take and eat and drink at this table, regardless of your church background or your affiliation. If you don't believe in that Jesus. Thank you for choosing to spend a Sunday morning with us. We're honored that you're here and we would encourage you to to keep coming, to keep uh, a curiosity and an openness, to keep exploring who, who is this person? Is Jesus really God? But if you are one who believes in Jesus, if you are ready even today to begin believing in Jesus, to follow his teachings, we invite you to join us. One of the things that we do as a part of this spiritual practice is we begin to respond to the invitation of Jesus by confessing what has happened in our life, confessing our part in this story. So would you join me as we pray this prayer together? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry 
and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. It is my joy this morning to announce good news to you. Words that are true, not because I'm saying them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again the mercy of God. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, and that is what proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you stand and greet those around you and offer the peace of Christ to one another? together you can follow along with the words on the screen Jesus is here lift up your hearts let us give thanks to the Lord our God it is right it is a good and a joyful thing to give thanks to you Father Almighty you formed us in your image you breathed your life into us. And when our love failed, when our love does fail, your love remained and still remains so steadfast. When we were unfaithful and when we are unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. In fact, on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and handed over to suffering and death, he was celebrating the Passover feast with his friends, with his disciples. And during the dinner, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and after he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And then after the supper was over, he took the cup of wine and after he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. And so Jesus, in remembrance of your mighty acts, we proclaim this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of the priesthood of all believers. So would you stretch out your hands with me as we bless these elements? Maybe you can open up your hands like this. God, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on those of us gather here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we could be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. And God, would you unify us to yourself? Would you unify us with each other? And would you unify our hearts so that we could be one in ministry to all the world until you come again and we see you face to face and we feast with you in your final victory. Um, I want to invite the servers now to come up. These are the gifts of God, friends. They are given to us as the people of God. As you receive them, I invite you to receive them in remembrance that Christ died for you. And when you eat and drink, that you would remember him with faith and with thanksgiving. 
feel like we talk about these instructions so much you could probably say them with me right now. But let me go through them one more time just in case there's anyone new. You're going to exit on your left, come down. There's two places to receive, two stations. Those in the balcony uh, can receive at the entrance or come down and join um, this group on the right here. When you come to receive, uh, if you would like to not receive today, that's fine. Just come on out of the row so that no one trips over you and you can pass on by and go back to your seat. But if you are receiving, I invite you to come with your hands open as a response to the invitation of Jesus to receive him. And the first server is going to put a napkin in your hand and the other servers are gonna take a gluten-free cracker dip it in a cup of non-alcoholic wine and give it to you to receive right then and there. You can take it back to your seats and receive with those around you. There's also prepackaged elements if you would prefer. Also after the service, we're gonna have prayer stations here. So please come forward if you need prayer for any reason. Let's worship together, friends, as we come to the table.
as you go, you are sent to put the gospel on display and to show the world what his love is like. So as you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn to you and grant you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now go and be the light. We'll see you around the city and next week.